Is uh, anybody in the room waiting on something today? Anybody? I think quite a few of us are. I wonder, what, what are you waiting on? What are you waiting on? More importantly, really, the question is, what are you waiting to do? What's your posture in waiting? You know, if you've been to an Alabama basketball game lately, which I've heard there have been quite a few to, with a lot to cheer about, I've been to one this year, and the, uh, the, the team fell behind, quite a bit behind in this game, and you could feel the crowd just waiting for the, for the tide to turn, um, just anticipating, ready to cheer. And sure enough, the, the, the moment came, and, and it's clear everything turned, and, and the home team won. People waiting in anticipation, ready to cry out in celebration. Or, or maybe you've been in an argument recently, and instead of listening, you're just waiting to respond. You know how you, you get in, a, in an argument, and more than listening to the other person, you're, just, you're building your own case, and you're just waiting. Or maybe sometimes you do wait with patience. Maybe you're waiting for a vote today, not sure how you respond after that. Waiting. How do you wait? The book of Isaiah is one long call to repentance and faith. One long call to repentance and faith and also one long declaration of the promises of God for those who do turn to him in faith. There are sections in Isaiah that describe how the message of God's sovereign grace will extend outward beyond his covenant people, outward to the nations of the earth. But much of the book, most of the book is for God's covenant people in Israel and more often in Judah and in Jerusalem. God is addressing his people, his children. Unfortunately, as we've already seen in the first 29 chapters or the first 30 and a half chapters of Isaiah, those children are rebellious. They are often dealing corruptly with other people and he refers to them even as being stubborn in their sin. Now, some of the promises that we also hear in Isaiah extend, they extend beyond the covenant people of God in the Old Testament, and they extend into the future and are for God's people throughout time. These promises are not only about what God will do, but also what his disposition is toward his people. What's he like? What's his disposition toward his children like? What sort of posture does he have regarding his children? Such passages reach forward to us and the church all the way until the return of Christ. Today's passage that I'm gonna read in just a moment was for the people of Judah in the late 8th century BC. But in it, in this passage, we find a depiction of God's posture and heart toward his people still today, even as he calls us now, as his sons and daughters, to a life of repentance and faith. This past Wednesday, the Ash Wednesday services, I read from Revelation chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. It's one of the seven letters to the churches, just a little later in Revelation from what Zach read earlier. It's in the letter to the church in Laodicea. Jesus speaks through them to the church, to, to the church still today, calling us to f repentance and faith. 
And Jesus says to the church, after he calls the church to repentance and faith, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And Jesus stands at the door knocking as his rebellious, stubborn, sin-sick people are barricaded on the other side of the door. That passage is about Jesus appealing to his covenant people who are stubborn in their sin, much like the people that Isaiah preached to. Well, today, what I want you to hear is what God promises for his people who will open the door. A little bit of context before we read in Isaiah chapter 30. At this point in history, the Assyrians, the the great, mighty, powerful nation to the north had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and were putting pressure on Judah and Jerusalem. God had repeatedly told his people over and over and over, as we have heard, that the danger they faced was not geopolitical in nature. It wasn't a geopolitical conflict, but a spiritual rebellion. They were scrambling to find a way to find a strategy even to save themselves. And yet through Isaiah, God continually reminded them that the only master plan for salvation was the master's plan. Salvation is of the Lord and found only in the Lord. They would have to trust him. If they want redemption, if they want salvation, if they want deliverance, even from the Assyrians, they're gonna have to trust God. Instead, as we saw last week, they loaded up treasures to take to Egypt to plead with her to save Judah. And when God spoke out about that, when they didn't like what God said, they minimized the word of God and they sought to silence the prophet. But God's word was clear as we heard last week in Isaiah 30, verse 15. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. That is in repentance and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. But instead of returning to God, they ran the other way, choosing judgment instead. This brings us to Isaiah chapter 30, verses 18 to 26. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. And he will give you rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread, the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water. In the day of the great slaughter, when the towers fall, Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day 
when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. The grass withers, the flower fades. You may be seated. I'll talk you through a bit of an outline if you want to make notes in your bulletin there. There's some space to do so. First point is just this. God yearns to show grace and is exalted in mercy. God yearns to show grace and is exalted in mercy. Verse 18, uh, therefore the Lord waits. Uh, the, The word waits It's a combination really of two ideas. It's patience and confidence. Patience and confidence, it makes me think of a sprinter in the starting blocks. Confident, they've trained, they're ready to run this race and they're they're waiting with patience, waiting for the gun to sound, but they're confident, they're ready to spring forward. God is in the starting blocks. He is ready to act. He's waiting with anticipation And he's ready to spring forward, we read, with grace. You may say, I know me, you know you. You may say, I don't deserve his grace. Well, here's what grace is. His grace, as Alec Motyer in his commentary on the passage, he said, his grace is his sovereign determination to bless the undeserving. Being undeserving does not disqualify you from grace. It actually qualifies you for his grace. It is his sovereign determination to bless the undeserving. God says, I wait. He's waiting to show grace, to bless the undeserving. What's he waiting on? In verse 18, we we read a little later. Why is it that he's waiting for the Lord as a God of justice? He is waiting for his justice to accomplish its purposes. And when his justice has done so, then he is ready to spring forth in grace and mercy for his children. Now for his children, for those who are his covenant people, like here in in, in, um, Judah and and now as we read it as his covenant people, united to Christ by faith in in the church as we read in Hebrews even, as his sons, this is all just loving discipline. The intent of that is to lead us to repentance and he will let it run its course. He will let his his justice, even his loving discipline, serve his ends to test our faith and to drive us back to his grace. And that is grace that he's eager to shower on us then. In fact, God says through the prophet here that God exalts himself to show mercy. God exalts himself to show mercy. Mercy is his compassion, which is overflow. It's an overflow of his passionate love for his people. (laughs) His compassion for us, compassion for those who are in a weak condition, in a broken condition, in a vulnerable condition. He exalts himself to show mercy. We think of someone exalting themselves to show strength, exalting themselves to to show their might and their power and their authority, their domination, exalting themselves to show their glory. But God says he exalts himself in order to show mercy. This makes me think of Psalm 130 where we read, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. 
We fear him because he has the authority to forgive. He's exalted because he's the only one who can truly show mercy. God's forgiveness and mercy is actually part of his exaltation. The one who can ultimately forgive is the one who has ultimate authority. Now, what is included and involved in God's grace? That's the second point I want to look at in verses 19 through 22, because what I think we find there is a depiction of the elements, some of the the aspects of God's grace as he shows it. And so, a heading could just be there, when we cry out, he hears and he acts. These are God's actions, what he does as he has waited to show grace, as he's ready to demonstrate mercy, when, when, when those who cry out to him as we'll hear, what does, he, what does he show? Verse 19 begins with these words. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. I will have people who dwell in, in Mount Zion, in the city of Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, Mount Zion in Jerusalem was the city of God, as you read in Psalm 87. It represents God's presence and therefore his favor of those who dwell there with him. This is God dwelling with his people. So this is about restored fellowship. So the first thing is just restored fellowship with God. He is eager and ready to be in restored fellowship with his people. Back in Revelation 3.20, I mentioned earlier, after Jesus reproves the church and believers in Laodicea, calling them to repent, He then says this, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to sit with him and eat with him and he with me. What Jesus is describing is fellowship. Jesus says to his church that was stubborn in their sin, he says, I stand at the door and I knock. I'm right here. We talked about this Wednesday. This is the parent who the child runs down the hall. In their, in their anger and their rebellion and refusing to, to, um, to seek forgiveness and they slam the door and this is the parent who walks down the hall and knocks on the door. I'm right here. I'm right here. I know you're hurting. I'm right here. Jesus says to the church, I stand at the door and knock and the one who opens the door, I come into him and we, we sit down together, we eat together. This is restored fellowship with Christ himself. The second half of verse 19, we read, you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. This is actually a part of God's grace that that actually it, it preempts even our efforts. This is God ready to listen, always listening. God blesses us with his own audience. We have audience with God. We cry out and he is, he is gracious just at the sound of it, as soon as he hears it. Like parents with a newborn. Parents with a newborn. Every little sound and they hop up and they, they run to the, to the bedside. At every sound, j- just to check, on, to check on the little one. Now, I gotta tell you, it's different by number six. Sorry, bud. But let me also tell you this. It's not different for God. He attends to every one of you. Every single one of you. He's ready to hear your cry. He's ready to respond with his grace. He knows your voice and he waits to hear it. 
Listen to David in Psalm 86. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. David understood what Isaiah is saying here. God is always ready. You know my voice. You're ready to show grace. Verse 20, the, the next thing that we see is actually a, a, difficult, a difficult reality. Listen, verse 20 says, and though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. I'm gonna pause there. It's just a little clause, but I think and that's an important truth. Notice this is, this is hard for us. But actually there's hope there because he says that the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. Actually, this gives us hope and hardship. God is the one who is sovereign even over the difficult things we face. Why? Why would God give us the bread of adversity and the water of affliction? Why would God do that? Two quick answers for how we have hope and hardship. First, spiritual productivity. He uses it to produce things in us. Listen to James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it joy when you encounter trials because God is gonna use that to produce something in you so that you won't be lacking. Spiritual productivity. One more, one more um, blessing that comes with hardship. This is Peter writing in 1 Peter chapter four. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. There's actually blessing and shared glory as we face trials and hardship. The second half of verse 20, we read, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher as God is ready in the starting blocks to, to show grace, to, to demonstrate his mercy, and as he showers that on us, another aspect of that is spiritual discernment, that we would know God and see him more clearly. He says here, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. So, so the, the real suffering, I believe, of affliction, the, the real hardship is often that it conceals God from us. All we can see is the tragedy. All we can, can see is the, the thing in front of us and it causes us to lose sight of God himself. All we can see is the Assyrians coming down from the north or the famine or the persecution or the shame of some failure or the, the loss of a relationship that we treasure. That's all we can see. Whatever the adversity is, it can begin to block God from our view, but he waits to be gracious. And as we cry out, he reveals himself. Our teacher does not stay hidden. Here I am. <laughs> I was right here all along. I was right here with you through that valley. But there's more. Verse 21, 
And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. He gives us guidance. In his grace, God promised us to give guidance. Ears made to hear our teacher guiding us. Our, our minds should, should jump to New Testament realities. We have even these promises more clearly given. Jesus himself says, when the spirit of truth comes, that is the spirit who, God, who Jesus promised to send to, to his church, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In God's grace, he promises to give us guidance as he provides even the Holy Spirit to speak to us, and he speaks to us first and foremost through his word. He guides us, directs our steps. And then verse 22 one last benefit of this grace, an expression of this grace, a promise of, of, of God showing and lavishing this grace and mercy upon his people as we come to him, crying out to him, is deliverance from idolatry. Verse 22, then you will defile your carved idols. <laughs> over and over, we've heard God talking about how his people defile him and defile worship of God. And now he says, there's gonna come a day when you defile those idols, you will defile them, even though they're valuable to you. They're overlaid with silver and they're gold-plated images. You'll scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. <laughs> as people who God is ready to show his grace to, just as they call out to him before they've done anything to fix their situation except cry out to God, he showers this grace upon them, shows mercy, gives guidance, reveals himself. And as he does so, he turns our hearts ever more fully toward him and we see our idols for what they truly are. First Thessalonians, Paul writing to the church there said about how he was received. He said, it's been reported to us concerning the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is true at our conversion, but it's also true throughout our Christian lives. So this is God who is, who is ready and eager. He yearns to show grace. He's ready to exalt himself in mercy. And, and then we see these depictions of his grace for us that he wants to just pour out upon his church, upon his people. But it doesn't stop there. The, the, the third, the, the last point is to show us that this grace, it's not just about us. His grace impacts creation itself. The third point is that God restores creation and he transforms it. Verse 23 through 26, before I read that, it's important that we remember that the entrance of sin into the world didn't only leave us in our fallen condition, but all of creation experienced the fall also. The ground even was cursed. The animals suffered because of Adam's sin in the garden and they still suffer today. In Romans 8, Paul describes this saying that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, and that creation is in bondage to corruption, and that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The environment has a sin problem, and it's not by its own choice. 
But I want you to listen again to the impact of God's grace and God's mercy. God's grace and His mercy. Verse 23 through 26. And He will give rain for the seed which you have, with which you sow the ground and bread, the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day your livestock will graze in large pastures, and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water. In the day of the great slaughter, when the towers fall, moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days. In the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. The seeds his people have planted, God will provide the rain and the power to to produce. Instead of the ground being cursed, like we read in Genesis 3, or God providing the bread of adversity or the water of affliction, God promised to give a bountiful, bountiful harvest of rich produce, an abundance of water. There's even water on the tops of mountains. And if you've been on many of tops of mountains, the only time you find water is there is snow melt gathering in little pools. But he says, no, in this day, there will be streams on the mountains. God is going to provide this abundance of water and even the beast of burden are going to eat well. They're going to eat seasoned fodder, not just what you throw out the door. And the illumination of creation The illumination will change. The light of the moon will be like the light of the sun and the sun will be shining sevenfold. Darkness is vanquished as God's grace is poured out, as God exalts himself in mercy. The true and living God, who's a God of justice, waits to be gracious and his grace is not meager. It is extravagant. It is world changing and it is for you and it's for me. What day is this? It's when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. We may feel his hand of discipline sometimes, but the hand that heals and the hand that binds up is ready and waiting to show grace. How can we possibly think today? Today, 27 hundred plus years later, that this message could apply to us? How can we think that we can be numbered among his covenant children? It's because God's hand of justice inflicted blows on another in our place. This is our hope. This is how the God of justice exalts himself to show mercy. God is infinite and he is glorious in justice. And since he is perfect in righteousness and altogether holy, any and every thought, word, and deed against his holiness and in rebellion to his authority must be justly dealt with. And the wages of sin is death. In the Old Testament, that wage was ceremonially paid by way of sacrifice, but those sacrifices were finite and only signifiers of a greater and more perfect, lasting, permanent sacrifice. The one and only sacrifice that we read about earlier in Hebrews 10 and that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him, in Christ, God's justice is satisfied for all those who are united to him by faith. He is our substitute. He has faced the blows that we deserved. 
By faith in him, we are received then as sons and daughters who have been declared forgiven, not because of what we have done or what we merit or what we deserve, but because our substitute has lived and died in our place, period, full stop. That's the gospel. But because that gospel applies to us and we believe that, then we now know that we are sons and daughters. We've been adopted. We are numbered among his people. And he will lovingly discipline us, waiting for us to cry out in repentance. There's a near fulfillment of this section of Isaiah 30. It's when the restoration of the land came after the Assyrian invasion, kind of a partial fulfillment. But there's an ultimate fulfillment too that Isaiah sees all the way forward to. It's the new heavens and the new earth. This passage extends beyond us or even the church here on earth today all the way into eternity. Isaiah, I believe, is seeing the victory and the salvation of God in its consummation. In eternity future, God's people won't be gathered in Jerusalem at the temple for there won't be a temple in that city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city won't have any need of sun or moon to shine in it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamp is the Lamb, brighter than seven suns. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Into it will stream the glory of the nations and Christ will be exalted and we'll be there. We'll be there. You may not be living as one of God's stubborn children right now. Maybe you aren't standing behind a slam door. Praise God if that doesn't apply to you. But there will come a time, maybe even soon, when you'll be confronted with the reality of some sin in your life that you didn't realize or recognize before. Know that God exalts himself to show mercy to you. Maybe right now you aren't eating the bread of adversity or sipping on the waters of affliction. Praise God for that, but there will come a time when you do. Cry out to God. He waits to be gracious to you. His steadfast love, it's new every morning. His mercies never come to an end. How can you know that he will keep his promise to be gracious? How can you be sure? You can be sure because he has shown you his son. He has revealed Jesus to you as Savior. In all his glory, in his perfection, his love, his kindness, and his victory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that is living and sharp, your word that divides and your word that binds us up. I pray that it will be a comfort to us and a reminder of your, your posture even toward us, that you wait, you're eager, you're ready, and you're confident to show grace to your people. Give us the humility to cry out to you. Help us to see how dependent we are and how strong you are, how needy we are, and how kind you are. I pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.